We're having a birthday party. Today is a special one. And having a birthday party is a lot of fun. A, a lot, lot of fun. fun. So light, light up the candles. One for every. Oh, wait. No, that's Did that's I... right. Just... Okay. I'm sorry. Just say that part one more so time. Light, light up the candles. One for every year that's gone. And have a happy birthday, birthday, birthday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hi, everybody, and welcome to a very special episode of The Goods, a film podcast. And it's special because this is a birthday episode. This is Brian, and Dan's here too. Happy birthday, Brian. Hey, thank you. Now, Dan, in our planning stages, has said that we should do something special for birthday episodes. So what, what exactly did that entail in your understanding, Dan? What was, what was your big idea? Well, actually, I don't want to take the credit myself because it really came from you. Perhaps our most faithful of followers who go back many years, which honestly are probably just you and me, Brian, at this point, I don't think there is a single other person who both listens to this and was familiar with us back in the day. But we did a special proto podcast to use a term that you've used before on the show for the earn this site that we ran. And we talked about best holidays. It was like we were doing the top five rapid fire game show type thing with you and me and uh, two others who regularly were writing on that blog. And we did a uh, one time, all four of us, a podcast. Again, it was like a game show where we were given a topic and we had to quickly come up with the top five for that topic. And one of the ones you were given is top five holidays. And you included in that my birthday is one of your holidays. And you, and you kind of have since maybe just then or maybe in other conversations we've had opined that you don't like the fact that birthdays stop being a big deal when you get older, that we need to continue to celebrate birthdays. And that's something that's stuck in my brain. And I've tried to embrace that, still be excited about birthdays. And so I thought in the spirit of that, we could do something fun on each of our respective birthdays. They're pretty evenly spaced. So it's not like we would rush them together. I'm June, you're January. At one point I thought maybe our favorite movies, but that honestly might not make the most interesting or memorable episodes. I like where you went with this, though. So we are recording today on January 20th, which is really my birthday. And we also have a special guest here who hasn't spoken yet. Uh, my brother, Andrew. You out there? Hey. Yes, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. And he's got a birthday coming up, too. Mm -hmm. My brother's birthday is January 27th. So we are seven years and seven days apart. Yep. I first became aware of today's film selection right around both of our birthdays. On January 25th in 2012, there was an AMA on Reddit with a Chuck E. Cheese game room employee with many sordid tales of what it's like working at a Chuck E. Cheese. You know, how, how often do you have to clean up feces 
How often do young adult employees have sex in the ball pit? A lot of valuable, informative nuggets in this thread. But what blew my mind is as you read through it, there were some old timers saying, wow, you know, Chuck E. Cheese, I remember back when it was called Showbiz Pizza and the robot band wasn't Chuck E. Cheese, it was the Rock of Fire Explosion, followed by somebody else saying, hey, did you know they made a documentary? And of course, I had never heard of the Rock of Fire Explosion before, so I immediately looked up this documentary and it turned out that it was available on Netflix at the time. I immediately watched the Netflix documentary and unbeknownst to me, at this exact same time, Andrew was reading the AMA as well. And then I went on to Netflix because I also saw the comment about it being available while well, there being a documentary and it being on Netflix. And sure enough, it was I couldn't even use the account because I use your account and you were already watching something. And the most recent thing being watched was this very movie. So I had to wait until you were done. And then I watched it and then I immediately watched it again with my parents. <laughs> and this turned out to be one of our big bonding moments in 2012, along with notably the 3D re-release of Titanic that came out that year to mark the centennial of the sinking that we both went to see. Mm -hmm. The next year, January 2013. So so like I said, we we both read this AMA and watched the movie on January 25th, uh, when my birthday is January 20th and his birthday is January 27th. As we dig into the subject material, you will find, I think Dan can vouch, that this is a very birthday appropriate movie, even aside from when we first encountered it. Definitely. There's some centerpieces of the movie that are around as a sort of bittersweet birthday song. And so a year went by. And in 2013, we had sort of a dual birthday party at Dave and Buster's. And we thought, you know what? Let's watch Rockafire again. It seems appropriate. At this time, Andrew took a deep dive into the Chuck E. Cheese lore, as he calls it. And it turns out there is just a huge wealth of material available of things produced officially uh andrew can tell us a little bit more about what exactly all this media includes um well lots of merchandise first off uh on ebay cups bibs any of the kinds of things you could get um behind a ticket counter there's lots of that out there then of course there's also lots of video and audio media um show tapes actual physical tapes of that record the movements of the various robots there's a whole bunch of course ranging between showbiz the wolf pack five chuck e cheese and oodles of others man it's great so if we haven't explicitly stated it yet our topic today is the 2008 documentary film the rock of fire explosion about the animatronic band that played in showbiz pizza restaurants. It was directed by Brett Whitcomb and written by Bradford Thomason. 
this was a pair of independent filmmakers based in Houston. And from what I understand, the movie mostly screened at film festivals and got a DVD release in 2009 that's now out of print. Uh, but it's pretty reliably been up on YouTube throughout the years, and that's usually how we watch it. And it has become our quintessential birthday movie, I would say. And it's only an hour long, approximately, so you can watch it real quick. But it's so dense. Now, I have a question. The, the movie's short, and it's got clips from like a bunch of interviews and this tour. We'll get to all that. Mm-hmm. Did you guys snag a copy of the DVD? Actually, no, I don't. We don't, do we? No, we never got one. Because I was wondering if there were like bonus features, like full segments of interviews, just part or or scenes or whatever, partially included on the documentary. I'm sure a lot of it ended up on YouTube. Yeah, I think it's all on YouTube, but there are a couple. There's an interview with Aaron about how he created uh, (laughs) Whack-A-Mole. Spoilers. Oh, yes. I forgot that that wasn't in the main documentary so you have the extended universe in your head whereas i mostly just have the documentary i I spent a few minutes not going down the rabbit hole but maybe dipping my toe in the rabbit hole just to see what was there yeah and it seemed like there was a lot of stuff definitely i'm glad that you at least mentioned the rabbit hole here at the start because that's what this movie is it's the first step into a larger world as (laughs) obi-wan says (laughs) It's, it's a little snapshot of all the things that you can pursue as you dive into the Chuck E. Cheese fandom. In Andrew's radio show, he described getting lost in the lore. I often find myself getting lost in the lore, he said, and, and that's <laughs> what we hope to provide here today. I, I don't know if you already mentioned that, so I wanted to bring it up. The other thing I did is I listened to Brian sent it to me. Andrew, you hosted a radio show called something different if i'm not mistaken i've listened to about five different episodes and i did not know until brian sent it to me a couple days ago that you had an episode it was about two hours devoted entirely to tunes and background and your opinions on rock of fire explosion it was a very compelling listen (laughs) thank you um, yes, me and my co-host also have very close birthdays. Um, me, January 20, being t- January 27th, and Isaiah being January 30th. So we always did some kind of birthday episode. And so for our very first one, definitely the most birthday-centric, but we would at least swap gifts and the other ones. We covered Rock of Fire as well as um, other animatronics from Orlando, since there's obviously a whole bunch, including Disney, as well as Mac Tonight from McDonald's, because that's the location of the only surviving functional Mac Tonight. But again, <laughs> got to stick to Rock of Fire. Yeah, if, you want the full, if you want the full story of Andrew's Mac Tonight quest, you want to check out his fast food episode of the radio show, which in some ways is a sequel. Oh, I think I do got to listen to that. That sounds compelling. (laughs) I have a lot of reactions to things that were brought up in that, that episode. I don't know if now is the time for me to bring it up or I should put a pin in that. I'll just bring up one right now since Mac tonight was already, was just brought up. I of course had to look up Mac tonight and I recognize that. I think I've seen that before. And I was reading the Wikipedia article and apparently a 
obviously not official, but like a fan caricature of Mac tonight who they called moon man. <laughs> they made a, like a shocking video back in the day of this character saying racist things, which was then subsequently co-opted by actual racists. And so now moon man, AKA Mac tonight are considered white supremacist symbols the same way that Pepe the Frog is. Pretty much. <laughs> made me laugh. I, there's actually a document, speaking of documentaries, there's a documentary about Pepe the Frog. I'm not sure if either of you got a chance oh, wow. to watch that, but it's, it's. Uh, I would say I would watch one about Mac Tonight as well. <laughs> do, do you want to share your, your Mac Tonight story, Andrew? Um. Sure. So... In my earliest research, which was probably a year or two after I first saw Rock of Fire, which was 2012, like Brian said, um, I found out that there were three Mac Tonight's remaining in the U.S., maybe a couple in Malaysia because they still have ads featuring the Moon Man himself in Malaysia, but um, one in Orlando, one in Potomac Mills, aka Woodbridge, Virginia, and one somewhere in like Michigan or something. But um, obviously we live close to the Woodbridge one. So we made a journey out there and he isn't functional anymore, but they had like the whole figurine with the piano and this crazy 50s looking McDonald's. And it was amazing. But unfortunately, that place, we went back once. And I mean, it's a decent drive for things that are around here it's like 35 minutes to make it out there and the entire mcdonald's was just gone it was just an empty lot and what happened to the the max (laughs) night i i literally emailed the head archivist at mcdonald's hq and he said he didn't know so as brian said what is he even doing how (laughs) are you the head archivist and you don't know but well i hope they at least have one figurine in their archives so maybe they don't have to worry about the other ones i'm thinking we need to do uh, the goods field trip out to the nearest dumpster the potomac mills and <laughs> just do some digging there make sure they didn't actually toss this bad boy out yeah absolutely so now the only one left is in orlando at the i think it's called the entertainment mcdonald's which is also one of the biggest mcdonald's in the world and he's actually still animated there but he's like up high on this platform above a staircase. So you can't get a good look at him the way you could at the Woodbridge location. So the name of the game today is animatronics, specifically musical animatronics. These are figures of musicians, sometimes human in nature, often anthropomorphic animal in nature. And they perform repetitive entertainment usually while people dine nearby. And this is our first time covering a documentary. So we're going to take a little bit of a freeform approach to recapping it because it's more about the people who get talked to and their experiences and the vibe it's presented with and not so much about every specific event. Yeah, I spent a lot of time as I was watching the documentary and afterwards before I even saw that, that you were going to bring this up in our episode notes here, I thought about how does one A, discuss and B, evaluate a documentary? Because there's like a lot of different ways you could do so. 
this one is it's semi-narrative but it breaks into lots of vignettes and character studies so i think you nailed it for this one we can maybe talk about the vibe as you put in all caps in our, our episode notes here so i was wondering what has been your exposure to chuck e cheese and in particular the robot band therein sure so i, I grew up in northern virginia and I did, I don't know if I, my own birthday party, but I definitely had been to one or more birthday parties at a Chuck E. Cheese with the animatronic band. And I just remember thinking it seemed so alien. It's like these weird things talking and they're like making jokes and there's lights moving around and it just felt like, I don't know. I think if I, if it had that same experience today, I would call it, feeling like I was on some sort of drug trip. But back when I was a kid, I just, I didn't even know what was going on. It was just so strange to me. And I was fascinated by it, but like mostly just by how weird it seemed. And then my last ceremonial visit to a Chuck E. Cheese happened short, very shortly after I got married. And I know it was that because I, I lived in this apartment with my wife for just a year really maybe even less than uh maybe a little over the year a year and we were walking distance from a Chuck E. Cheese we might have ended up driving there but I went there with at least once possibly two or three times I went once with my college roommate I went once with um, a guy at the apartment that I got to know and later became really good friends with Brian you seem to have some recollection of going with me I'm not sure which I, I was there to join me on yeah, I was there once with you and some other person. So gotcha. that happened in that window of time. Gotcha. And we, we played just a shit ton of skee-ball. That's always been my favorite. I know it's kind of like the boring dad one, but that has always been my favorite thing. And, you know, got their crappy pizza and their one beer limit and did some of the other games and stuff. I do not recall going back to the animatronics or – are there still animatronics or is it now like a TV screen? I kind of feel like I remember either reading or experiencing that. What's the, what's the current situation of Chuck E. Cheese with regards to animatronics? Um, up until like a year ago, they still had a single figure, but now system wide, they're out. It's all screens. End of an era. Yeah. It's unbelievable. I do remember in 2012 though, they were cranking uh, winter wrap up from my little pony. So. That was that was a banger. <laughs> so now let's talk a little bit about what this movie actually contains in this brisk little one hour runtime. I'd say the two stars of the movie, one is Aaron Fector, who was the founder, owner, operator of a company called Creative Engineering that put together these animatronics in the very late 70s that would ultimately be featured in the showbiz pizza restaurants. And the other pivotal figure is Chris Thrash, a Phoenix City, Alabama resident and Rockafire superfan who cobbled together enough money to purchase a Rockafire show of his own from Fector's Warehouse. And programmed it himself to play new songs and put it out there on YouTube to 
hopefully create a rock of fire renaissance. I agree. They, they got the most screen time. There's a couple other fascinating characters in here. I, I want to definitely talk about, about some of them, but they're kind of the highlights. Uh, I would say that some of the key themes in this movie that get developed are the idea of growing up or not. And everything is kind of two-sided. There's the pros and cons of nostalgia and also kind of the benefits and even detriments of deciding to follow your dreams. Because we start out the movie with a line pretty early on from Chris Thresh, where he says, if you dreamed something as a kid, do it. You dreamed it for a reason. And every time I suddenly find myself won over by this guy, even though he's a toothless bald man who drinks nothing but Mountain Dew. Like, this dude has a charisma and a confidence that I can only aspire to. The scene where we learned that he drinks nothing but Mountain Dew, my jaw was little, literally hanging open. I had to pause the documentary, which I was watching with headphones, and just tell Katie what I had just witnessed. <laughs> it's a great moment, and I'm very glad that they included it. <laughs> Andrew, can you describe this yeah. scene? Yes, and that he also only uses the, well, yeah, he mentions that he only drinks Mountain Dew and then the camera pans over to his sink and there's a mountain of like 30 Billy Bob and Mitzi mozzarella mugs. <laughs> so he exclusively drinks it with Rockefeller glasses. And he says he doesn't. Oh yeah, he doesn't drink any, yeah, no brown sodas. Yeah, no brown sodas. Not water, not tea, for no Pacific reason. <laughs> and Thrash is pretty representative of a whole retinue of these man-child fans who are featured as interviewees in the movie. They're all hyper-dedicated to the Rock of Fire, apparently. I mean, several of them have entire sets that they have maintained through the years and keep operating. Except for the one that's featured in the movie. Um, I guess that's another spoiler, but when they're in the 80s hangout place in Mississippi, that place has since burned down. Oh, no. At some point, I mean, that and the sudden removal and disappearance of the Mac tonight, these things are just going to, I mean, there's not going to be any of them left, let alone working, but they're all just going to burn up or get thrown away. So there's still work to be done. This is a, a call to action. Absolutely. These guys are doing valuable work by preserving this piece of material culture that would otherwise be abandoned and forgotten. There's a lot of stuff I liked in this that resonated in a way that was beyond the surface level. And I found something very compelling and evocative about exactly what you just described. This thing that doesn't really serve any purpose except to entertain. And it's just ridiculously intricate. There's at some point they talk about a little bit about some of the mechanics and the pneumatics and stuff that go into it and how I don't know how these people are like worshiping this, this thing, this physical deteriorating thing that doesn't really have any reason to exist except to entertain. 
I was chewing that one over as I was watching this and afterwards. Yeah, this documentary treats its subject, both the people being interviewed and the music group at its center, treats those subjects complexly. I'm left with a mix of feelings about how I should regard these man-children superfans. Their earnestness is presented positively, but their awkwardness is still played for humor. I think the internet kids of today, or maybe like two years ago, called this cringe. <laughs> when someone just being really super awkward is played for entertainment. And there's definitely some of that here. One interviewee I really wanted to know more about is... So most of them across the board are dudes about 30 years old in 2008. But there is this one attractive woman who seems to be younger than that. And she's with Aaron Fector. Her explanation, her name is Carrie. She says... They never when say I, her last name. Yeah. She says, when I was a teen... um early 20s i was working at chuck e cheese and i guess this would have been after rockafire had a presence at chuck e cheese so i don't know if aaron fector was just hanging out there or or how they came to meet but somehow she came onto his radar as being interested in some capacity in the rockafire and they ended up married uh, i don't think they're married not married but they've been together for a really long time Okay, yeah, well, maybe sounds... it's a common law thing. I will say, I had the exact same curiosity. There is a woman named Carrie Fector on Instagram whose icon kind of sort of resembles her that, I, I don't know. I think it's possible they did end up getting married, although uh -huh. I will trust Andrew's expertise on this one. I'm going to take a look at his Facebook account real quick, but he's pretty secretive. Um, at least about some things. Yeah, on Facebook, it says in a relationship with Carrie Green since June 15th, 2003. So, oh, okay. Not sure. Uh, I did see Carrie Fector written somewhere, but it could just be a common law thing. Uh -huh. You know what? I think on IMDb, she's credited as Carrie Fector. But my fan theory is that this is a robot that Aaron <laughs> Fector has made. The, the scene where it's kind of like a, a couple's scene. They have this, this back and forth between a, two couples, but one of them is Aaron Fector, the, this guy, the guy who created the Rockafire explosion and Carrie, as we come to know her in the documentary. So this was one of the small handful of moments where I thought Aaron Fector came off as a total creep and a total huckster. And he like even admits yeah, well, I knew there was one attractive young woman who liked it. I heard about her. I knew she was too young for me, but we still ended up together. And I was like, mm, okay, buddy. And then he has a, like a recounting of one of their first conversations where they have drastically different perceptions of exactly how it went. She thinks that he was just blabbering to show off. And he's like, oh, she was too shy. She wouldn't say anything. And I, I don't know. It was interesting. Yeah, he does come off as domineering. But I, I will say... If you make something and you have groupies, any at all, take advantage of it. Yeah, you've done something at that point. But I, I was, or I found it compelling in that scene how Chris Thresh definitely is the one who comes off as more romantic. 
they kind of bury the lead here. For about three quarters of the movie, you assume that, at least I assumed, that Chris Thrash lived alone. Then at this couple's back and forth comparison scene, we find out that he's married as well. And we get their love story, which is still, I mean, in keeping with the tone of the documentary, it's still kind of quote unquote cringe. He's working as a DJ at a skating rink. Not to go too far into the weeds, but she was like too shy to talk to him. And so her friends helped her out and connected them together. And then they got married at the skating rink, which I was going to save this for a little later on. But I think this is one of the perfect encapsulation moments of a theme of the documentary, which is that these are people who found something that they enjoyed in life and then never let it go. It's like that one single thing, that time, that place needs to be preserved forever just exactly the same way. And that's going to be what I revolve my life around. Yeah. You talked about how one of the opening monologues is, is the moment that Chris that Thrash run, won you over as, as almost heroic. For me, this couple's back and forth was the moment where he won me over. He just comes across as just this huge heart and so genuine and just the romantic way he talks about it. And like, it's the ultimate in like a corny idea, having the wedding at a uh, roller rink that they met at where he was a DJ. And I don't know, it was just like, it touched it something deeper again, where it's like, to some extent, if you're going to live with your heart on the sleeve that much, it's going to be kind of off-putting to the rest of the world, but it's going to be so genuine to you. And when you're in Phoenix City, the only other places to get married at are the Walmart and the Waffle House. <laughs> I was laughing when she was talking about that. Those are the places you go to hang out? All right. <laughs> so to lay out a little bit of what can be called the narrative of this movie, it follows a rough timeline of the rise and fall of the Rock of Fire. The movie, the very, very first thing that happens is a quick recap of the years 1980 to 1990 because in 1980 showbiz pizza opened they had a partnership with creative engineering air infectors company that they were going to put rock of fires in all the restaurants and they were quickly buying up franchises quickly expanding across the country until by like 1983 they had 200 restaurants is that does that track andrew yes that sounds right then later in 1990, the robot bands were ultimately overhauled because, well, what you need to understand is that Showbiz Pizza and Chuck E. Cheese's Pizza Time Theater were actually rival companies for a while. They were both completing in, they were both competing in the marketplace and they were both struggling, but Chuck E. Cheese was struggling more. And so Showbiz bought them out. And to sort of trim the fat and set the ship aright, the executives, the 80s fat cats, decided that they needed to cut back on the royalties they were paying Aaron Fector. So they told him that either he could fork over the copyrights to his characters, or what do they tell him, Andrew? Um, I got to think about it exactly. And they didn't offer me a pluck nickel. 
they said, if you don't give us the rights to those characters, your creatures, Billy Bob, are going to die. But if you give us those rights, they'll live on. That's what you'll get. But I wasn't ready for that. I saw future TV shows, T-shirts, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> I've only Andrew, seen it 15 times. <laughs> Andrew, your rendition of Aaron Fector had me imagining John C. Riley playing this character <laughs> at some point. Yeah, I guess it doesn't sound quite that Southern. <laughs> Man, I want to watch that movie now. The Aaron Fector biopic starring John Riley. <laughs> so I have one comment on this to be a little bit of a downer. I just, I kind of already mentioned this. I kind of got the feeling throughout that Aaron Fector is one of those guys who has a flexible relationship with the truth particularly if it makes him look better or more heroic or something. Yes. I don't know if we're going to talk more about the whack-a-mole thing. <laughs> I don't I don't buy a single word of that whatsoever. And I also would like to hear the other side of this story of the proposed buyout of the Rockefeller characters because I, I'll just say I'm a little skeptical of, of his verbatim recounting of the situation. Yeah. I think that's fair. Any documentary you look at is going to present one point of view. And there's always going to be more behind the scenes. But I think you're right that Aaron Fector especially has a way he wants to be seen. But he had this moment, this showdown, where he said he was going to retain the trademarks. And then Chuck E. Cheese did something called concept unification, which involved them ripping the skins off of the robot band that was there, the Rock of Fire, and slapping on new skins, new cosmetics, they call them, to represent existing Chuck E. Cheese characters. And this was a big mind-blowing moment for me in the movie. This revelation that the characters I had seen when I had my sixth birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese were just pale imitations, false idols. Crude reskin. That's right. It's like a deviant art original character. I want to talk about something for a sec. So this phrase, is it concept unification? Is that what it is? Yes. So in the small handful of media related to this that I have seen in the past 48 hours, people talk about concept unification. It's always capitalized. They talk about it like it's a historical event. (laughs) They, They almost talk about it like it's, it's like, like the, the Holocaust. Holocaust. Exactly. <laughs> like, it's a great purge. Is concept unification specifically a Rockefeller explosion thing? Is that like something that they talk about for other corporations and stuff? Or is that just like a part of the, the weird world of Rockefeller explosion? Before the dark times. Yeah, Before exactly. concept unification. So I, I guess can it- imagine that being something in a sci-fi novel, like part of the premise. We had to undergo concept unification. I guess it probably is a actual business thing. I don't. I think Carl's Jr. and Hardee's were originally different companies, and then they joined together, and that probably would be a form of concept unification. I wonder if they use that phrasing though. It yeah. has the same level of devotees. <laughs> <laughs> then one other moment that gets touched on in this opening explanation is when Chris Thrash posts his first videos on YouTube of making the band perform pop songs like hey there delilah and apparently these went semi-viral 
and brought some attention back to the Rock of Fire and is what motivated the making of the movie that year. We get a few other super fans talking to the camera throughout the movie, aside from Chris Thrash. I haven't written down many of their names. They're all the same type of individual. Like I said, mostly young-ish adult men, often kind of scruffy. And I was wondering, did you notice any um, any resemblance to anybody that you know? I don't know. I can't. Does someone look like someone that you have in mind in particular? Um, well, I would say I got to think of his name. It's like Darren or Dustin, the guy with the Mitzi mozzarella tattoo, who is the owner of the place that burned down. Kind of looks like you, Brian. Like that's what I was going for. Is I could <laughs> see myself in this lineup, and it, this movie kind of holds up a cruel mirror. <laughs> it's like uh, Scrooge being shown his future. <laughs> I, I'm going to have to watch again and figure out which one's the Brian. I'll report back on, on my take on your <laughs> resemblance. But I did write down the name of Travis Schaefer. This is the webmaster of showbizpizza.com, which is really where the rabbit hole begins, should you wish to venture down it. I spent like 15 minutes on this site and I was blown away. You can go, it has like a list of every show that he's aware of and has like full reviews with five-star ratings of them. Sorry, five token ratings and like tons of pictures and breakdown minute by minute of what's in each set list. And man, impressive. I mean, impressive, maybe that's the word. <laughs> Dedicated is certainly a word. And yes, in almost every case, these show tapes are preserved and available. And it's just all the songs and the jokes, everything that the robots did with like a running time code. It's pretty remarkable because of course, everything to do with the Rock of Fire was mass produced and sent out all across the country to different restaurants. And so chances are, if it was created in association with this big corporate undertaking, somebody's got it somewhere still. And these guys are dedicated to finding it and preserving it. It's like a weird dichotomy though, because I don't know, going back to what I was saying a little bit earlier, witnessing the deterioration of these things is just a reminder that, I don't know, I kind of think of culture as a, an endlessly growing and infinitely preserved archive. Once you make a movie, that movie exists. Once you write a book, that book exists. And the concept of things disappearing, it's like, first of all, it's weird to me. Like if I have a file and I save it on my computer, that file's there forever. It's not going away. The concept of real culture like real created things disappearing is it's foreign and it's kind of horrifying like imagine you're you created this amazing animatronic show and in the one sense it's it's just going to crumble down to dust but in the other sense part of it is retained but that the fact that you have the music and you have the the jokes and the recordings but you don't have the physical tangible thing reinforces the fact that these things and who know and and just culture in general from kind of an earlier time are just gone forever gone with the people who made them and who love them i don't know like i said pretty evocative to me yeah the part when chris thrash said well after concept unification happened 
All I had left was a couple dolls and a recording he took on a tape recorder standing in front of the robots. And that's the only evidence he had that the rocket fire ever even happened. Yeah, it, um... <laughs> One of my biggest questions about this movie and these guys that they're talking to is how did this handful of men who seem to have such arrested development, A get the money to buy a huge robotic installation and be learn everything they needed to know to operate repair and even program this huge robotic installation yeah that's a good question they don't say it in the movie but i think i read somewhere at some point that each robot is like fifteen thousand dollars so the whole setup is like 60 oh my gosh yeah i would say if the only real estate you have to buy is in Phoenix County and they don't even know how to spell Phoenix. It's probably a little bit more affordable. So I was wondering if some of these, I don't know, you kind of get guys like that who are just, they can focus in on details. I'm not going to say they all have Asperger's. Uh, Some of them probably do, but this ability to kind of like hyper-focus on something often make really good programmers and engineers and creative types. And so I was wondering if some of these people like happen to be have really lucrative careers of their own. But if I'm not mistaken, I think you even have a note about it here. He was just a car salesman. It's not like he had an extra remunerative job or anything like that. Right. I think he was a full time car salesman, part time roller rink DJ. That's right. Where he met his wife. But I guess if you're super dedicated and just that's the one thing that you're working towards you can put your pennies together. I will say that after we watched this film in 2012 and 2013, I wanted to do what I could to preserve an institution from my childhood that I had fond memories of, which was Blockbuster Video. So when those finally all started closing in 2014, I scavenged a lot of Blockbuster fixtures and have, I can't really call it a blockbuster because it's all in pieces. I have most of a blockbuster in my basement <laughs> preserved. Wow. So Do you I've have some... one of the, like the diagonal rectangle video thing? Is there like a, I don't know, something that would have gone on top of a store or like the center of a store, like a big plastic one or something like that? I'm just trying to imagine what this looks like when you say you have most of a blockbuster. I guess you probably have the racks. Yes. So I do have one of those diagonal shelves that goes down the middle of an aisle and is two-sided. I have a new release shelf, which were the tall ones that went along the walls. And I have a coming attractions board, which is this huge thing that hangs from the ceiling and is curved. And one side has the Blockbuster logo on it. And one side has a marquee that has slats so you can slide in the names of DVDs that are coming out and you can slide in promotional posters. And this thing is like 15 feet long. So, uh, so someday uh, the blockbuster will have a future and people will file through and appreciate this perfectly preserved blockbuster. Just like I do. Did you get some of the, the VHS cases I remember, I think maybe this was more the VHS era. They had the hard plastic snappy cases. 
that had the blockbuster logo on the the front and the back if i'm not mistaken and then the name of the movie on the spine the, the dvds they probably did actual dvd cases though right well we have just a couple of those not very many but if gotcha we got some uniforms we got some blockbuster logo tablecloths so a pretty good spread and one day when Chuck E. Cheese finally goes under, we'll be running it back there. Quick tangent, Andrew, when I was listening to your radio episode, uh, uh-huh. you and your co-host were talking about how you were determined to work at Chuck E. Cheese the following summer. Did you end up getting a job at Chuck E. Cheese? Um, so at first I applied online and I didn't even get like an email confirming that my application was submitted or anything, let alone a response. So then finally I went into the store and did a paper application and I also never heard anything back on that. So I tried twice and they wouldn't even acknowledge me. Tragic. But now I don't really want to go back now that they got rid of the animatronic entirely. Yeah. They went to the dark side. Yeah. First concept unification. And then the great animatronic purge. <laughs> so we haven't talked too much about what the rocket fire explosion actually was. So Andrew, tell us a little bit about the members of the rocket fire explosion. Alrighty. So I think there are five or six primary members. The standing ones are like six feet tall. So that's part of the reason they're so expensive, but the front, Well, I don't know if he's really the front man, but probably the most iconic one is Billy Bob Broccoli, who's actually named after one of the executives, Robert Brock. Um, And he's a huge guitar playing bear with a uh, bird on the end of his guitar called Birthday Bird. Um, And he's voiced by Aaron Fector. And he's like a stupid hillbilly, pretty much. And then the other competitor for frontman would be Fats Geronimo, who's an organ-playing gorilla, voiced by Bert Sal Wilson. And then behind him would be Beach Bear, who is like this jockey surfer bear that sits on a surfboard and also plays guitar. And then there's Mitzi Mozzarella, who's a cheerleader, mouse, and just sings. And then... There's Duke LaRue, who's a astronaut dog that plays drums. And we're still not really sure. I I think in some stuff they claim he plays the drums, like literally plays the drums in the songs. I think his sticks come into contact with the drums, but I think there's still audio of the drums in the music. So that's debated. And then finally, there's Rolf DeWolf who's a wolf comedian and his ventriloquist puppet Earl Shemurl. And he's also voiced by Aaron Fetcher. The ones in the middle, I wish, and I should know the names of by heart, but I don't other than Mitzi is Shalisa Sloan. And yeah, that covers everybody central, I think. And who's your, your man, Andrew hmm, or gal? Yeah, definitely not Mitzi. So, um, Hmm. I would say Rolf, probably, who okay. he's, he's like, he's not even really in the band. He's their manager, although that's also kind of debated. I think he thinks he's more important than he really is. But yeah, probably Rolf. What about you guys? I enjoy Rolf, too. He 
tends to tell some disparaging jokes and receive more of the same. Mm-hmm. He's uh, he's the the straw that stirs the drink. He tends to be a source of conflict. I- I'm a fat Geronimo guy, I think. I mean, obviously, I, you guys have eight years of uh, time to reflect on this, and I've had two days. But uh, fat Geronimo is the one who who uh, echoed with me. He's he's cool. He seems chill like i'd hang out with him and i feel like you'd have some good stories you know definitely well i guess i didn't mention the looney bird um looney bird is a weird unless that's what you were about to say um but looney bird is kind of a weird one because i don't know if he's really a true member of the band he's on the stage but he's not a full-size robot so i'm not sure he doesn't play an instrument so it makes it debatable whether he's a full member (laughs) Well, I guess there's, well, I said birthday bird. Um, there's Antioch the spider who may have lines and show tapes. I'm not really sure, but it's just a spider on a string that bounces. It doesn't actually have a moving uh, mouth clevis is the correct term. The other big ones were the rotating seasonal characters, which aren't really explained in the documentary. They're briefly mentioned, but there was a character called Uncle Clunk, who is a human, and he had the ability to pick up a phone, like actually reach over and grab it and then raise it up to his head. Um, And he was some kind of traveling installation. And then at Christmas time, they would take off his cosmetics and turn him into Santa. But I don't know how many of those there even ever were or how much it actually traveled. It In the very... movie, Aaron Fector makes a brief mention of having some Uncle Clunks sitting around. <laughs> and that's just one of the many breadcrumbs that you can seize on and follow the trail. <laughs> There's lots of things that he just kind of says offhand. That aren't really explained and just it made me want to know more. And sometimes I got a little more context as it went, and sometimes not. I, I am Brian when I first started watching it. Just his opening monologue is just utterly genius. It's poetry. And he talks about how he wants to solve the energy crisis. And I, I, I'm sure we will talk a little bit more about where that led him eventually. But, and I like kind of hoisted on his own petard on that one. Um, but then he mentions the IA, I think, what is it, IAAPA or something? Yeah. I don't think it had been mentioned prior to that. And I was like, what is he talking about? But then we got a little more context on that. Yeah, Andrew, can you tell us about the IAAPA? Uh-huh. The International American Amusement Park Association runs this trade show every year. Presumably not this year, unfortunately. Well, actually, I think it's entirely for... Uh, members of the industry or like influencers i don't think you can just get a ticket to it but they show off shooting galleries and traveling fair rides and stuff and it's in orlando because obviously orlando is the capital of that kind of stuff but that's where aaron first showed off his wolf pack five which was a precursor right so he made this Wolfpack 5 music group. He also had one that was a shameless ripoff of Disney's Country Bear Jamboree called the Bear Country Jubilee. <laughs> and the Rockafire was the result of kind of mixing and matching band members from Wolfpack 5 and Bear Country Jubilee. And I was wondering, Dan, I know you're a big fan of 
a goofy movie. Did you see echoes of or or origins of Lester's possum posse here? You took some of my discussion notes for things I liked about this, how it made me think of Lester's possum park. And I had to rewatch that scene prior to uh, to recording this. It very much made me think of it. It's got the joke about how hard it is, how these things never seem to work properly because they're so intricate with the guy kind of jabbing it with his elbow. And uh, it has one of my favorite comic moments from any movie it, when Max is sitting next to this toddler who's just jabbering along in this ridiculous atonal singing and staring at Max. And Max looks over at her a couple of times and it, I've seen it probably 50 times and it makes me laugh every single time. So one of the big strengths of this movie for me is just how much background media they have to draw on. And there's a lot of behind the scenes footage. You've got things like commercials for Showbiz Pizza, but also just all this footage behind the scenes of creative engineering of them building the robots. There's like news reports. There's video of the band members, the actual human band members recording. It's a neat window into the past that it was all documented as heavily as it was. It actually made me think of, um, I think it's called Imagineering with the people who build the rides at the Disney parks and how I've watched a couple of like little, not really documentaries, but videos about it. And this is one, there was this one uh, guy who had a Ted talk that went viral at one point about how he wanted to be an Imagineer was a major part of it. And, and actually for Christmas, Brian, you got me a book. I haven't looked at that one yet, but I think it's like Imagineering and how to be a creative and stuff. Yeah, it's like creative exercises inspired by the Imagineer approach. And I think that's spot on. I think creative engineering, I mean, even the name is trying to draw on Imagineering. And it's no mistake that it's all happening in Orlando. The whole Chuck E. Cheese phenomenon was kind of based on the fact that the tech that Disney uses and pioneered was becoming more affordable. And so it could be brought into malls all around the country. Right. So it, it's kind of the whole enterprise is parasitic off the back of Disney, or, I mean, you could read it more charitably as just, it has become available to the masses. But one weakness I think is that time jumps around a lot in this movie. The organization is not always clear. It'll sometimes be later, sometimes be earlier. The part that I'm at going through my notes right now is a scene that kind of tracks in more detail the rise and fall of creative engineering. What I'm always thinking of when I see this part, and I've watched this movie like five times maybe, is the 80s business world, early 80s, 1980 to 83. I'm sure there were a ton of Coke-filled parties going on as these fat cats in suits were telling Aaron Fector to make 200 robot bands. We see the 100th grand opening and they have Aaron Fector in a Billy Bob bear suit flown in in a helicopter into this big parking lot full of a cheering crowd. I'm sure you know exactly what this made me think of, Brian. 
I don't. Thinking back, thinking back to our uh, second episode. Oh. There's a whole thing about the grand opening of the, I don't remember what number, but it's a grand opening of a McDonald's where Michael Keaton, Ray Kroc is a, a hero. That's right. He's like got the giant scissors to cut the ribbon and they say Minnesota is McDonald country or whatever. That's right. Good pullback. There, there's something about kind of all seems tied together like this cult of celebrity around kind of trashy culture. Like if you've seen uh, King of Kong uh, with the Billy, I forget his name, the guy with the long hair, this competitive arcade speedrunner. Do you remember his name? Like Billy, Billy Mitchell. Yeah, yeah, Billy Mitchell. And it's and a lot of it seems like around either in the '80s or like culture of the '80s that gets celebrated in this way. It's just it's kind of fascinating. Maybe it's the cocaine era, is what it is. There's even a mention that in 1983, Michael Jackson came to the Creative Engineering <laughs> headquarters. And we think we've been able to figure out that that was when they recorded a Michael Jackson tribute show for the band and that that's the connection. But apparently it was like right before Thriller dropped. And when he was there at the warehouse, at least according to one article I read, the Rock of Fire was also playing a Beatles tribute show and that like a week after this visit, Michael Jackson bought the Beatles rights. Interesting. Like, hmm, you know who's popular according to this robot band? <laughs> the Beatles. I, I need to look into this. I'm a little unsure on the timing of that because I listened to, oh wait, it was on your, was this one on your show or was this a YouTube? I can't remember. But uh, Man in the Mirror is a Michael Jackson song. So if that was part of the tribute, that comes after Thriller. That was an, uh, off Bad, which was a couple years later. So I don't okay, know. Okay, well, we're learning. We're learning more <laughs> then. So perhaps the tribute show was not related to the visit. Well, maybe he visited because he loved the tribute show. You know, something like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> Obviously, there is still research to be done, but it makes a good story if the Beatles thing has anything to <laughs> any veracity to it at all we still have that that one read left there is a gap though in this tale because it jumps ahead to all the bands getting concept unified in 1990 but the opening of the 100th restaurant or 200th restaurant was in 1983 so there's this pretty big gap here that's not really explained what i believe was going on is that Creative Engineering continued making what we've been calling show tapes, recordings of performances and program tracks for the bands that were still getting shipped out to the restaurants throughout the country throughout the 80s. Right. There's a lot of them. I was looking at the, the list. There's dozens of them. And also the, the periodics characters that come in and out and stuff. Yeah, you're definitely right about this documentary that it's not it's less interested in being a thorough linear narrative retelling of the saga it's more thematic groupings which personally did not bother me i can see why someone who's fascinated in the nuts and bolts of the story that would be appealing but for me i was as much or more just drawn to the people that were a part of this and so i kind of didn't have any objections to the way that the film was organized 
it is certainly still compelling. And I thought for a while, while I was writing up my notes, how to sum up the unique feeling that this film has, because 100% it has a distinct vibe. That's a word that gets thrown around a lot in the days of vaporwave. But I think it is warranted here. The movie has a sensation that is captured masterfully a handful of times. And what I ultimately came down on is cool but sad. And I think this applies even to birthdays themselves and the passage of time. It's like we're having this fun occasion to celebrate and mark the fact that more time has gone by and is now in your past. I'm not sure I would use the word cool at all around this, but I think otherwise I agree. It's just the way that it earnestly engages with this, this pastime. But like everything you see in this documentary, anything that somebody has preserved, I found myself thinking, wow, they still have that. Followed by, wow, they still have that. <laughs> and it was like the one-two punch of every single thing that you see or hear about is it's remarkable that it still exists and is still preserved but also, huh, that's kind of weird. And like, what else is in their lives besides exactly, this thing that yeah. they preserved? It's a duality for, for all the characters, all the stories. It's like, the one hand, it's, there's, there's something commendable and lovely about how much joy it brings them. And on the other side, there's something very pathetic and sad about how this is the thing, singular thing that brings them unironic joy in their life. I think one perfect encapsulation of this odd vibe is a shot they use a couple times throughout the movie of Chris Thrash walking around in the lower half of a <laughs> Billy Bob suit. These costumes are called walk-arounds. And like if you ever had a Chuck E. Cheese birthday party, you know it. at some point Chuck E. Cheese comes out and walks around, walks through the crowds. And that's what these walk-arounds are for. But Chris Thrash is just walking around in the big oversized bare legs and just kind of meandering around his yard. And for some reason, that was a touchstone for me. The weird, <laughs> awkward hilarity of it. For me, I'm with you on that. I love that image. But the, the specific moment that did it for me is when he is like a, I don't know, 20-second shot of him trying to put the costume on slowly putting it on he like pulls it up and he like quite literally shields himself from the outside world with rocket fire explosion you see him like escaping from the outside and retreating into that <laughs> i can relate i like that metaphor and i i did jot down a few lines that people said that drove home this message of this is their escape this is their obsession uh, one of them says, this isn't really something I ever take a vacation from. <laughs> like they just decided that's their life. That's their day to day is rock a fire obsession. And that's who they are. But another was somebody was like talking about things they liked as a kid. And he says, I don't know if there's anything today that strikes me that strongly, which is interesting. I mean, I, I think that is probably true of a lot of people. Like, you just don't feel as passionately about things as you get older that maybe you once did. 
So our previous episode, we talked about the movie The Apartment with my good friend, Nate. And Nate and I have had many conversations about this exact topic, how just the way that the brain develops, you don't feel emotions as strongly as a, an adult that you do when you're a kid. And on the one hand, this allows us to be more stable creatures to interact in a more orderly world. On the other hand, obviously it's how you, what you feel. That's the way you engage with the world on an emotional level is like the thing that, that amplifies every experience and sticks with you. So there is something lost and some of it is just, you know, you experience something for the first time and you can never be the first time you experience that thing again. And that's part of why it's diminished, but even things that would be novel as an adult or it, it still is, but it doesn't trigger the same emotional reaction. And I don't know, I think about like, for me, I was really into sports when I was a kid up and through basically college. And then I, that's a story for another day. But when I was a kid, when I was like, I don't know, 10, 12, a football game for the team that I was a fan of, whatever team it was, was like the biggest possible experience. Like it was, it was uh, the peak of existence for me. It was you, I would look forward to it all week or all month and it would be the big game and you'd remember every moment of it. Like I actually still remember specific games in great detail from when I was in early high school. I don't know, like as I got later in college and, and then maybe this is just drifting away from sports in general, but nothing really hit the same way afterwards. I mean, it was kind of hard to be emotionally invested in whether this football team won or didn't win. And I kind of use that as for me, a emblem of how, your emotions don't swing as much, you know, I don't know. And I think there's a, it's good and it's bad. And that's a major reason for nostalgia is looking back on the times that you did feel those things. And that's something I found in the characters here is it wasn't as much, it wasn't entirely about the coolness of seeing an animatronic robot. It was how it made them feel when they were a kid. And how they wish they could go back to that or how being around it isn't just experiencing the music, but it's re-experiencing that past and, and, and what they were, what it evoked in them when they were kids. I don't know. Yeah. Great point. The movie comes to what could be called a conclusion at the derelict creative engineering warehouse this is where Aaron Fector is still sitting alone, Ozymandias style, surrounded by his, his works. Look on his works, ye mighty in despair. And you see he's got all kinds of robot concepts all lying around, aging, shows that maybe never quite sold, different ways of setting things up he kind of guides the cameraman through the labyrinthine cellars of this facility. And we see where all the people used to work, but don't anymore. We see like a moose head on the wall that's starting to melt and mountains of eighties electronics. And in some ways the place is frozen in time. In other ways, time is reclaiming it. I got to say, I was thinking of you the whole time that we were going around this warehouse. 
Brian, because we've had conversations on here about how you work at a warehouse and how you found it in Return of the Living Dead. You find it so memorable how they get to go around a science warehouse. And this is obviously not science, but it's like old 80s tech and, and gadgets and, and inventions. And I was like, oh, I bet Brian's sitting here basking in this and wishing he could be walking around that warehouse himself. We were both basking. And <laughs> you mentioned earlier about a possible podcast field trip to the Potomac Mills dumpster to search for a discarded Mac tonight. I have something maybe a little better, maybe a little more sure to deliver. Aaron Fector offers guided tours of the Creative Engineering Warehouse for $400 for a group of four, and it's supposed to last three hours. Is that, like, still active? I mean, minus the 2020 shenanigans, like, that's recent? Within the past few years, but yeah, I wonder, because the warehouse is a little smaller than it used to be, which we don't need to get into yet, but... (laughs) Oh, yes, we'll we'll get to that in just a moment because we're almost yeah. to the end of our hour runtime of the movie. <laughs> uh, as we've handed a couple of times, what we see here is just little little visions of the vast world that we stumbled into after watching this movie. We end with this poignant, pensive Aaron Fector alone among his creations. And we get a little bit of a coda of hopefulness like, oh, where will the Rockafire go next? I think the subtext is actually probably nowhere. <laughs> People aren't going to seize on this thing again. It really is a relic of the past. On the other hand, I kind of feel like from what I've read and what I've seen, this has been a little bit of an emergent cult fandom, probably even since this documentary was made. In fact, certainly since then. Definitely. My favorite musical moment in this movie, at least, is a performance by Aaron Fector of a song called Sal's Birthday, which is a song that the Rockafire would sing at birthday parties, but it's in a minor key. And it's pretty sad for a kid's birthday song. But would you like to favor us with a few bars, Andrew? Um, I guess I can try my best. Just the intro. Sure. The key bit. Already, we're having a birthday party. Today is a special one, and having a birthday party is a lot of fun. A, a lot, lot of fun. So light, light up the candles, one for every. Oh wait, no, that's Did that's I... right. Just... Okay, I'm sorry. Just say that part one so more time. Light light up the candles one for every year that's gone and have a happy birthday 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 yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> something like that but it it is literally velvety and creamy in every way in the documentary he he says is that the one that goes and then he just plays it perfectly so He'd probably been practicing for 25 years. Which leads to my other theory, which is that this air infector that they speak to in the documentary is also a robot. <laughs> that he built, like, in the, in the wake of the collapse of his business, the real air infector killed himself, but left behind this robot double. 
that is meant to power up if anyone ever comes to the warehouse. I like that. But I, I also like just this image of this guy whose dream never came to its fullest fruition. And he's kind of, he still wallows in that. And that's why he's played every song a hundred times because just waiting for something to happen. And that's why he can pull one up on a moment's notice. By the way, I'm definitely taking your rendition and making it the intro for the show. That was beautiful. (laughs) Thank you. He has a very Michael Scott line when Aaron Fector says, everybody's your friend when they're on your payroll. (laughs) That is a Michael Scott line. Yes, that's, that's great. And that pretty much wraps things up for the documentary 2008, The Rock of Fire Explosion couple more lines I wanted to work in are Aaron Fector sitting in his warehouse says that's the evidence that time has passed the deterioration and I think that is a pretty important theme of the movie it's like that's what we're looking at here is deterioration and people fighting against the clock to try to counteract it like each of these spaces that these people have set up these little rock fire shrines are like oases in time. They're places where it seems to have stopped, but still it's eating away at the edges. Well, then the very final beat of the movie, though, like as soon as the credits start to roll, is Chris Thrash says, I'm 31. He, to me, he does not look 31. I agree. Maybe drinking Mountain Dew every day ages you a little bit. It might, but I have to say that today I am 31. Oh, how poignant. Perhaps. I don't know how you feel about that. It's impactful. (laughs) So I did want to talk a little bit about some things that we've discovered subsequent to the film, if that is all right. Absolutely, yeah. So, Andrew, could you tell us in a little more specifics? I haven't let you talk too much so far, but I know this is your... Forte. Yeah, I can't believe it's already been eight or nine years since we were looking into all of this. But I mean, probably the main lengthy offshoot thing that we've watched aside from the documentary was all of the Chuck E. Cheese's University production videos uh, that are out there. Um, Training videos for Chuck E. Cheese produced, I think right around the same time as concept unification that there's probably like five or six of that we watched a general orientation one and then ones on game room pasquale's pizza kitchen pizza making the salad bar oh yeah the salad bar and i think there's one that's just on customer interaction and And specifically when you're wearing the walk around Uh uh-huh oh yeah you're right But yeah, they're all really, really good. Um, I'm Facebook friends with Todd Horschner, the uh, host of KekU, as we call it. Um, But yeah, they're really, really good. Basically just as Vaporwave as the documentary itself. But additionally, there's a YouTube account called Pizza Cam because during Concept Unification, Well, I guess we never said who got turned into who in concept unification. Not that that would mean anything to anybody, but so Rolf became Chucky 
I had the Earl Shemurl mech removed and it just became a normal hand. And then Mitzi became Helen, Helen T. Henny, and Fats became Munch. And then Duck became Pasquale. And am I leaving anybody out? You didn't say. Oh, Jasper that T. Jells. Beach Bear became Jasper yes, T. Yes. Jells. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, but otherwise, Billy Bob was scrapped. I guess he was too recognizable. But yeah. So what I I brought that up because Pizza Cam is what Looney Bird was turned into. It's like a camera that comes out of I get I mean before he was in a, a barrel of gasohol. Do you know what Pizza Cam comes out of? No. What does Pizza Cam come out I, of? I I actually don't know. But I you always have to have yeah. something coming out of a barrel in these animatronic mm-hmm. bands. It's represented in Lester's Possum Posse. Uh, there was an appearance of a very Rockafire-esque band on Gravity Falls that had stuff coming out of barrels. Really? It's just key. So yeah, the account is called Pizza Cam, but it's basically the primary channel for anything from the Showbiz website. Just recordings of every show that's ever existed between Showbiz and Chucky, as well as probably some Wolfpack 5 stuff. So it's just a really good channel to follow in case they wind up finding any more show tapes. And then finally, (laughs) my personal favorite, and this account is now dead. We can't believe it. It randomly disappeared within the past year was Daryl Heine or D Heine. And he posted lots of old 80s, 70s and 90s commercials. But he also had some... (laughs) Deep cut Rockafire and Chucky coverage, specifically one that we just absolutely loved, where he talked about Sally Sachet, who is a skunk character in the very early Chucky days, even prior to Rockafire, like in the 70s, I think. The animatronics have always been scary, but they were even scarier then. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you want me to do a Daryl impression or not. Well, just to set this up, he had in this video, which was maybe like a 10 second video. Yeah. He has two promotional images of Sally Sachet. It's, I don't know if both versions were actually made, but they have subtly different cosmetics. And what does Daryl Heine say about them, Andrew? Yeah, well, he doesn't have like official prints of these things. They're probably just pictures he printed offline and he's flipping between them. uh, And he says, here we have Sally Sachet with black hair. But in this photo from the costuming department, she has white hair. <laughs> and for some reason, we always just a lot. Or I said black hair the first time, right? Yeah. It's, it's yeah, one yeah. of it's one of it's each. Something like I, don't know, that. I don't know the exact uh, <laughs> order, but yeah, he's flipping back and forth between the one with black hair and white hair. And we will never see that video again. Devastating. Yeah, I never downloaded it. But yeah, he had some good coverage. I'll also Uh, give a shout out to the modern day Chuck E. Cheese YouTube channel, which is very comprehensive with recent show tapes. mm. Which is largely with puppets, right? Right. They do a lot of puppet stuff, a lot of animation. Mm -hmm. So 
Andrew, since our topic today is the movie, what would you say is your biggest find or the most important information that is not included in this hour of runtime of what's shown in the film? Um, well, this won't necessarily be the number one. I'll have to think more, but we did say we were going to touch on the whack-a-mole. And there is a special feature about this, but Aaron relentlessly claims that he invented whack-a-mole and it was stolen by the Japanese at an IAAPA. Um, so that's a pretty deep cut. Can we and pause on that for a second? Yes. I, so Brian sent an article from, I think it was DCist. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think this is where I read one account of the whack-a-mole thing. I think this was whack-a-mole. It talked about how the way that he kind of got in on this was he was there and he met a carny named Denny Denton, which is just a hell of a name, first of all. But that Denny Denton basically hired him to figure out how to make whack-a-mole actually work. Then at one point he went to go meet with Denny and Denny had a gun that he pointed at him and he had the line, you're either a carny or you're a fool and you're not a carny, <laughs> which I thought was great. Wow. But it, it it went deeper than that. Maybe this wasn't the one you sent me. Maybe this yeah, is a different one. I haven't one. read this. This is new to me. Okay, so this is a different article I read. I'm going to find it. I'm going to send it to you. But then the second thing is they tracked down... Okay, so the guy who wrote this article tried to find Denny Denson to get his account of the version. And what, what Aaron Fector told this reporter is that Denny Denson lived in Gibsonton, Florida. Are you familiar with Gibsonton, Florida? Yes, that's the freak show retirement town. Exactly. And I had never heard of this and I was reading through it and it was kind of mind blowing. It has all sorts of characters. It's near Tampa on the coast of Florida. And the one thing that the Wikipedia article says about the town is it's the only municipality in the United States that has specific zoning regulations related to owning pet elephants. I will say Gibsonton was going to be the destination for Gauntly Halloween trip 2020, but RIP. Nobody yeah, was doing much traveling dang. in 2020. But then the reporter said that he did a little bit of hunting and was not able to track down Denny Denton. I'm not even convinced Denny Denton is a real person, but uh, <laughs> I'm going to find this article and send it to you. And we can... Uh, Maybe we can include it as bonus coverage in our uh, our post. Yeah, or have a follow-up. Just I start also a whole second podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, the goods to our second YouTube channel. <laughs> the Daily Goods. But I also wanted to mention a couple recent developments in the Rock of Fire community. Andrew, could you tell us the story of Hydrillium, please? Yeah, so I think this is what uh, Dan was hinting at with Aaron's foray into clean natural energy or whatever he says at the beginning. But he was experimenting with some kind of cooking fuel. I don't know too many specifics, but I think it, it wasn't too long after we saw the documentary. It was probably sometime in 2013, maybe, that he had a tank of his cooking fuel which i had been seeing him post lots of stuff about that he was touring around showing off this fuel in the months preceding but he had a big tank of it in his warehouse alongside all the rock of fire stuff sitting around and it didn't explode or combust 
yeah, it didn't combust, but it did explode. Somehow the pressure became too extreme and it burst. And the warehouse is next to train tracks and it was bad enough of an explosion that they had to temporarily close the tracks to repair them. Like one whole side of the warehouse is just gone. And so everything in the documentary, probably most of it is still there, but it's got to be way more condensed down now. And some of it certainly got exploded, but somehow he survived. So tragic. Yeah, there's still something to go see, which I certainly would have done in the past couple months if I had made it to the Disney College program like I was scheduled to. But unfortunately, that'll have to wait. So I read another article. Maybe this was the DCest one. Maybe it was another one I found. Just I think I just searched Aaron Fector and went to the news tab and opened the top ten and just scrolled through them looking for anecdotes because it seemed like this is the kind of guy where you get anecdotes whenever he gets written about. So the hydrillium one that I read basically said that he hired a technical mentor, which I read to be. He didn't actually know what he was doing and he found someone who knew what he was doing and tried to put his own kind of invention spin on it. But anyways, that this guy that he hired, and I don't have the name, had previously dealt with what was essentially hydrillium, but it had a different name. And he hadn't told Aaron Fector this, but this quote unquote mentor had actually run into the same issues. So what happens is for some reason, the way that the gas is stored it causes condensation in the barrel, which is not in itself it's a problem, but the, when some of the chemicals in hydrillium interact with water, they break down and expand in volume. And so the barrel was getting pressurized and pressurized as more and more condensation occurred. And eventually it was so much that it explode, exploded. And because it had been built up so much, it was a massively forceful explosion, which is why it did so much damage Jeez. But of course, we had our finger on the pulse of air infector developments. And so the day that this happened, <laughs> Andrew had the news coverage of the crater, basically, the <laughs> blown outside of the warehouse with news cameras walking around and air infector like runs by in the background. <laughs> also, I think something that needs to get brought up in any discussion of present day automaton enthusiasts animatronic enthusiasts is the five nights at freddy's phenomenon so we took the rock of fire deep dive in 2012 and 2013 in 2014 i think yes the first five nights at freddy's came out and i think raised awareness among the youth of creepy animatronics and sort of revived the 30-year-old enthusiasm for them. I think that game was one of, I don't even know how you pronounce it. Is it PewDiePie? PewDiePie? One of his first... DiePie, yeah. Yeah, it was like his uh, ascendant moment was, was Five Night at Freddy's from what I read one time. It got really big for a little while and they pumped out several sequels. And I kind of see that as a bridge between... You know, we have these kind of niche figures that we see in the Rock of Fire documentary, these enthusiasts preserving the stuff, all the trappings of the Rock of Fire. And, oh, that's kind of cringy. 
or whatever. You know, it's presented that it's a source for awkward humor in some ways. But there's a really big community of theme park YouTubers who do exactly the same thing, which is just get as much information as they can about vintage theme park attractions and similar enterprises like Chuck E. Cheese entertainment media that might otherwise be lost. There's a community dedicated to bringing it to light. I feel like those people are not as marginalized. Like, like maybe this is becoming cooler is, is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. These, this vintage preservation of old timey, not tchotchkes, but something along those lines. I saw another one that I found pretty compelling and it was someone who documented elevators. He was obsessed with elevators and he would go to like where historical elevators still were and film himself going in the elevator, looking at all the equipment and buttons and stuff and going up and going down and trying to get a view of the machinery of it. I I do think there's a universe for people to be obsessed with this kind of ephemera. So are we ready to talk about some good things about the Rockefeller explosion? Maybe in general and more specifically (laughs) this movie? Sure. Let's go for it. I already said it, but the biggest strength for me was the sheer abundance of period media that they were able to draw on for this movie. You see news reports and commercials. You see footage of the helicopter coming down at the 100th opening. And Aaron Fector with a colander on his head recording (laughs) tracks with the band. They just clearly did their research to get all this media together. I guess that's another aspect we didn't even mention and isn't mentioned in the documentary, the colander heads. I saw that that was one of their signature shows. So something where they, the colander head show, they called it. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I don't know exactly where the idea for the colander came from, but it was a promotion that they did on Wednesday nights because apparently in the Family Entertainment Center business, Wednesday nights are always the worst night, so they need to stir up business. Um, and so they'd have deals on half price games and stuff like that. But they also put colanders on all of the <laughs> all of the animatronics and all the employees and had shows specifically centered around being colander heads. Yeah, it's like a it's community. Stuff. They were trying to build this this group of diehard fans that they come on Wednesdays for the deals, and those are the colander heads. Interesting. It made me think of the lampshade on the head is like the stereotypical partier, but this is like <laughs> the an alter the alternate universe version of that where you put a colander on your head and you go see creepy animatronic dolls singing covers. Another thing I appreciated about this movie, I think it's no surprise at this point, but I did enjoy the vibe. Nothing says sad birthday like this movie. I don't know. It's It was the perfect accompaniment to a 23rd birthday at Dave & Buster's. Dave & Buster's itself being almost its own sad birthday vibe. It's like these grown men who remember going to Chuck E. Cheese's as kid want an adult version of that. And so they go to, they go there where they can ride go-karts and drink booze and stuff. Exactly. And 
my other good thing bullet point for this movie is the runtime is short so it's easy to rewatch and to introduce to other people absolutely yeah love me a 72 minute film were there other good things that you noticed definitely for me this kind of goes in line with the vibe thing and i've already talked a lot about it so i'm not going to expand too much on it here but i really love documentaries that look into niches or like weird circumstances and basically just present things at face value i mean obviously whenever you're making a documentary you're kind of crafting the reality for the viewer in some way it's and there's no such thing as a truly authentic unbiased presentation of material but where they basically take this a niche they present it in essentially without commentary they just let the the characters talk or the the people talk and don't necessarily tell you how to think and feel about it so you kind of get to decide that on your own and especially when it like toes the line between mockery and reverence for me that really works and there's actually a specific documentarian named Errol Morris who has released a bunch of classic documentaries that are of that ilk he also has more serious ones too Actually, one of his documentaries is something that I would like to show you sometime, Brian, if you haven't seen it. It's called, I think it's called Gates of Heaven. Have you seen that one? No, but I've heard good things. And I think specifically from you. Yeah, I I would like to watch that with you and, and pick your brain on your reaction to that one at some point. That one is about a pet cemetery. It's a little different. It's not really like a niche so much as it is a kind of just a specific universe, I guess. But I I love documentaries like this. And I thought this one did a really good job of combining the fact that these people are dweebs, but also heroes or, or something like that. I don't know. I, I found it very compelling. Yeah. They're weirdos doing important work. In particular, Chris Thrash, man, he's one for the ages. It's like, there's a, a lovely poetry about this guy he's like a mark twain character basically he's just the the all the wrinkles we get to see on this guy and the way that he just exists in his own universe but he's also a part of his community and i just i savored every moment that that we were sipping some mountain dew with chris thrash do you ever see his teeth andrew does he have (laughs) teeth i was not quite sure Um, i tried to keep a clear eye out for it this time i couldn't tell yeah, it's hard to say, but I would say probably not. <laughs> so he doesn't have the gummy Joe uh, underbite that I typically uh-huh. expect of people who don't have teeth. So maybe it's like a couple bits, just <laughs> enough to hold up his lips. Yeah, he has he has the load bearing teeth. <laughs> <laughs> on the topic of good things, I'm gonna put Andrew on the spot here. Mm-hmm. You, we've talked a lot about how you were big into this at least for a period of time and you still seem to be somewhat of a, a devotee of yes rock a fire explosion i'd like to hear why and maybe there's <laughs> not and not an ex- well, explicable reason why but what what about rock a fire explosion is appealing and magnetic to you uh-huh um that's a really good question it's definitely like two well at this point this doesn't explain why i was into it a long time ago at this point it's like two layers of nostalgia because 
when I first saw it, I was basically right out of middle school. So it's already been quite a portion of my life ago. But at the time, I don't know, I guess I was just I was starting high school, starting to realize I had to prepare to start doing more adult things, which I haven't really yet. But just trying to look back, captivated by by Chuck E. Cheese, like we said, we read that AMA and probably my goal at that point was to at least before moving into college work at Chuck E. Cheese at some point. And so that was one big thing that really pulled me into it was just learning as much as I could about the companies. But other than that, it's really hard to explain. I have no idea. I for three or four years Definitely, it was the biggest thing I've ever been into. Until um, Lazy Town came into your yeah, life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, now I can really understand those guys in the documentary because that's me in the Lazy Town community. But that's a whole separate podcast. Yeah, I wish I had a better answer, but I haven't quite figured it out. That's my quest. I'll have to figure it out at some point. <laughs> Sometimes these things just call to us. Yes. That's all it is. Absolutely. Were there any other good things about the movie that you noticed, Andrew, that you wanted to hmm. make sure got some airtime? I definitely don't have as scholarly of a view as you guys have on movies. I kind of, like I just said, I, and that goes for any form of media. Like I don't look into symbolism or meaning i just like things or i don't like things but any other good things i'll toss yeah. something out there while andrew's thinking yeah if he has any others sure i really like the way a lot of these people talk just the way that they talk was compelling to me some of it's the accent some of it is they have weird turns of phrases <laughs> you mentioned pacifically as as one and i that was one that i noticed and laughed at at the time but there's a few carrie is that the name of the woman she had a couple mm -hmm. i just want to hear these people talk some more i want to like hear them tell their life stories somehow i, I never heard the pacifically thing when i saw that written in the document i thought it was a joke <laughs> he says no water no tea for no pacific reason <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's notable that both Aaron Fector and Chris Thresh have lived in one town their entire lives. Aaron uh -huh. Fector has always been in Orlando. Uh, Chris Thresh has always been in Phoenix City, Alabama. I suppose, like you already mentioned the vibe, but my favorite documentaries are all very similar to this. This, you already mentioned King of Kong and super size me which is obviously normie but those are three documentaries i could watch every single day and i'd never get bored of them they're just basically relaxing for me <laughs> quality vibes we all need things that are just I'm, I'm looking for the right phrase for this i i've mentioned it on this podcast cotton candy is something i've said but that's not quite right it's easy to eat cotton candy but you wouldn't want to eat it every day mm -hmm. I, I don't know what the right phrase is but something that you could just take in every day and it just kind of sustains you and and is always easy going down that Same. type of entertainment everybody has their own things that 
that it's that for them. And it sounds like the, that style of documentary is one for you. For some uh-huh. people, it's horror movies for sure. Mm. I, that's never been that for me. For me, it's like teen comedies slash romances. I can just turn one of those on basically anytime. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because one line that I pulled from the documentary is Chris Thrash says, if you can't handle the stress of life, people have different ways of dealing with that. He's basically saying that Rockafire is his drug. <laughs> it's, his way of, <laughs> it's his way of tuning in and dropping out. Yeah. Putting on the bear suit. <laughs> uh, one last good thing, and this goes back to something you alluded to a minute ago. I think from a narrative perspective, it, it does a really good job of drawing parallels, compares and contrasts between its two main characters, Chris Thrash and Aaron Fector, and how on the surface, they're like extremely different. They're polar opposites in some ways, but kind of underneath, they have a whole lot in common. They're both just, they love big toys and, and celebrating them. And I don't know. I thought it was I thought that was pretty interesting and pretty well done. Kind of not it wasn't too in your face about it except a couple of places like when it cut back and forth between the different couples. Now is it time to cast a more critical eye? Sure. So as far as a not so good thing that holds this movie back a little bit in my mind is the muddy timeline. It seems like the calendar jumps around throughout the movie and it's a little hard to keep track of developments but i mean i do think that was intentional dan described it well that it's more about vignettes that are held together by a common theme but it just keeps it from being one that you know this is not a pick of mine that i'm going to throw an eight on at the end just as a a little taste of what's to come i do think that's fair uh for sure there are like major segments that are kind of left out too. And I kind of felt that the one that really bothered me is they make a big point about how Aaron Fector is, he, he said no to the man who's going to make his own dream come true. And then we cut to the future and it basically hasn't like nothing's really come of it. Uh, you know, small things here or there, but it's not the media empire that I think he imagined it would be. And I really wanted to probe more into how this impacted Aaron Fector. Like, is he a changed man because of that failure? What did he feel about that failure? You get, you get a couple of tidbits, but mostly he's still the same chipper, confident, overconfident guy. And I wanted to pierce that, that shell a little bit more. Right. Or just to find out more about what he had done in the intervening 15 years. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, it's kind of like, Scrooge I come back to Scrooge a lot but it's like you know you have one breakup and it dooms your life forever or what what happened in those years you know the ghost of Christmas past would show Aaron Fector maybe this interaction with Brock but what happens after that what happens when it's not Christmas particularly early on it seemed like he was such a hungry guy he would go for anything and then as soon as Rockfire happened he basically did nothing after that. He's kind of stuck on that one thing. I don't know. It's interesting. I want to, I want to learn more about it. On the other hand, I feel like they thoroughly investigated the emotional arc of Chris Thrash, which I think I already mentioned. I loved. So 
here's sorry a tangent and maybe this doesn't belong right here but i'll just say it anyways i saw in a youtube comment of the documentary itself because i did watch it on youtube like you mentioned someone said that chris thrash maybe had like opened his thing a little bit more public but ultimately he couldn't afford the robots anymore and he sold it to someone in korea do you know anything of the future of chris thrash wow um I had not heard that. I I mean, obviously, they mentioned the whatever it's called that he opened, um, and it definitely didn't last long, but I was hopeful he managed to at least hold on to him at his house still. But, yeah, I don't know. I hit him with a friend request, but he never accepted it, unfortunately. Yeah, um, we we did know that their restaurant had closed, but we didn't know the fate of it beyond that. Uh And since you mentioned the friend request, Andrew, who are you Facebook friends with? Well, I am friends with Aaron Fector. Um, That's how I was checking his relationship info. Well, he's extremely Republican, but he's also kind of as a result, very skeptical of social media. And he's threatened like 10 times in the time I've been friends with him to leave the website and switch to some other social media. But he's never really done it. But his profile picture for years has been a Facebook logo with an X over it. (laughs) So, yeah. I know the type. My cousin is similar. (laughs) So I get to see what he posts, but he's probably not posting everything. You're right, Dan, that this movie leaves some important questions unanswered. The big one I wanted to know was price information. How -hmm. much do the robots cost? How are these people getting that much money? How do they know how to program new shows? Those were the three things that I was left wanting more on. I mean, it sounded like he basically mortgaged two years of his life to get enough money to pay for it. Then again, he said he became a DJ. And isn't that where he met his his wife? So, you know, it's still that at least. Yeah. Life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. As another great musician said, John, John Lennon up there with Beach Bear. (laughs) what about you andrew are there any weaknesses of this film that it ended (laughs) you guys have definitely mentioned some good ones i mean seriously i think it could have been longer but not everybody who watches it would be as captivated as i am um but i mean yeah could have been 20 minutes longer and covered the questions that we've brought up yeah i i as much as i love a 72 minute runtime i feel like it could have ascended higher into classic status if maybe just a hair more details i don't know uh-huh. I'm, I'm kind of both sides on it i like i like the short runtime but it could have had a little more depth but it sounds like there's pretty extensive stuff to dig into i mean it's not like this is the only time you're ever gonna be able to learn anything about rock fire experience yes. or explosion or whatever it's called by the way i missed the obvious joke about uh the rock of fire explosion with hydrillium. <laughs> right. I don't know if I put that together. You're exactly right. He's creating explosions to this day. One other thing that I, I've got it as a not so good thing, but I guess what it really is, is a true thing. It's a truth bomb, which is <laughs> after all, what documentaries are great at delivering is this movie for me holds up a pretty cruel mirror. I see a lot of myself in these figures that we're talking to here in this movie same it it has me asking some questions <laughs> and evaluating some things were there any other criticisms you wanted to level dan 
Um, no, not really. I didn't really come at it with a, a fine tooth comb to try and nitpick it apart. To me, this is one of the more just experiential things. It's not a crafted narrative. So you go in to just kind of soak in the, the vibe, as we've said over and over here, and, and just kind of immerse yourself in the people and, and their, their stories. And so I didn't come at it from that nitpicky of an angle. So just kind of my overarching things that I, I already brought up. Well, great. We need to end this maybe with a supercut of any time that anyone has said vibe. Vibe, yeah. Before we hop into the is it good section, I have just a couple questions, mostly Andrew, but for both of you. So one is, have you ever seen a live Rock of Fire explosion show? I wish. I don't think either of us have. Brian's lucky to have gotten to see what he saw in my time. It's always just been... I should know the specific name for the exact model of stage show at our Chuck E. Cheese, but it was always just the one modern looking Chucky. So I haven't said yet what my experience was at Chuck E. Cheese. I did have my sixth birthday party there. And at the time they still had a band that was composed presumably of reskinned Rockafires. It was the full band on the three stages, but as Chucky characters. And I remember during the party, somebody peeked behind the curtain and I took a look too, because after they'll play a set, there'll be a brief intermission, you know, like a real band taking a break backstage. But it's just that the curtains close and the robots stand there silent. And that was pretty creepy. I can certainly see how that would lead to people creating the Five Nights at Freddy's franchise. So now I can't remember if this was an article I read or if this was in the documentary itself, but someone talked about how he basically did the same thing as you and made it seem even more real when they were just kind of back there, just hanging out, looking down, ignoring the world around them. Yeah, that's actually that's actually in the movie. Chris Thresh says he feels like he he felt like he was intruding, like they didn't want him back there. The, The robots themselves, the band members didn't want him back there. I thought that was a pretty compelling uh, <laughs> observation. Sorry to interrupt. Was that was there more to your Chuck E. Cheese? No, no, that was there? a good that okay. was a good moment. I forget the exact question you asked. You said, "Oh, had we seen?" You said, "Had we seen a real rock of fire?" And that was the closest I think either of us has come. Would you rather see a real rock of fire show or go to the warehouse, the lab, whatever it is? I mean, they have a setup there, so you see it when you're there. But if that wasn't a part of it and they were just standing there, I think still seeing the whole rest of the warehouse and meeting Aaron, even if the figures weren't there, would probably top it. But that is a very good question because, I mean, if I could go back in time and actually be at a location in 1980, then I'd probably pick that. So it's really hard to say. (laughs) What about you, Brian? I think my answer is pretty much the same. Seeing a full set that was maintained well, that would be pretty miraculous. But I am still very curious about what Aaron has to say. I'm surprised it's taken you this many years to get down there, Andrew. I think you need to do like Chris Thresh says. If you dreamed something as a kid, do it. You dreamed it for a reason. You got to go go meet Aaron, Andrew. I'm leaving the door open for... uh the goods field trip to, to Aaron Vector's uh, warehouse. I'm down. 
Yes, I certainly should have made it happen sooner. But like I said, I absolutely would have done it this winter if I was down there. I assume he's not too worried about Corona. So he's probably still doing tours on some level. Remind me, where is it again? It's like right in the heart of downtown Orlando. Gotcha. And I was going to be doing the Disney College program at Disney World all winter. So I would have been there. But Yeah. Oh, one last thing I was going to say. In one episode of your radio show, Andrew, you talk about what would you do if you had a time machine? Mm-hmm. And like, if you could only time travel once and then come back, what would you do? <laughs> and Isaiah says he would go to tomorrow and get the winning lottery numbers. And you say you would go to Planet Play in Burke Center <laughs> in the year 2000. <laughs> and Isaiah says, we have different priorities. <laughs> because uh, Planet Play was a local business that was similar to a Discovery Zone or a Chuck E. Cheese. And we assumed when we were kids that it was as nationwide as those franchises, but it was actually only three local ones. There was one at Springfield Mall. There was one in a Burke Center shopping center. And then there was a water park that they owned called Planet Splash and Play. Interesting. Another possible field trip for us is on the Wikipedia article for the Rock of Fire explosion. It says there is a poorly maintained one in West Virginia. I assume you've never tried to go out there. <laughs> At Billy Bob's Wonderland? Does it exactly. say? Yeah, uh, we have not. We should. I know Aaron had some kind of beef with the owner of that place, like... Aaron was contracted to do some level of repairs and then wound up getting chased out with a gun. Oh, that's or something. right. But that was the article that I yeah. sent. Just yeah. like you said, I mean, who knows? He could have made up his side of the story. <laughs> that was another moment when I read that article. I was like, I bet there's a second half to this. Yeah. <laughs> but someday that would definitely be easier. Well, maybe. I mean, West Virginia, parts of it are pretty far away. It took like seven hours to drive to the Mothman town. Wow. All right. A couple more hypotheticals here. If you, let's say you were exactly where Aaron Fector was during some of this footage and he shows he has boxes of unopened, perfectly preserved rock of fire explosions. How much of like a holy grail thing is that for you? Like, would you want to own one? Would you pay significant sums of money to own one? Or is it uh, is that not, not something that appeals to you? I guess this is kind of a weak answer, but if I had the money, absolutely, I would do it. I haven't started working, really, so it's hard to say how much I could really value it, but I, I owe it to myself in 2012 to someday see at least about the possibility of doing that. I would love to find anything Rockafire adjacent in my yard sale hunting. But as far as a huge installation like that, it's not really on my list of must finds. Also, it would require a lot of upkeep and knowledge of how to make it work and be presentable. Exactly. That, that was the real secret sauce for Chris that Thrash, I think, is the fact that he not only acquired it, but he like legitimately programmed it and maintained it and even invented his own things and stuff that that is real dedication. Right. That's the person who deserves to have a full functional rock of fire in their home. 
Exactly. Yeah. I'm going to keep working on my blockbuster for now. <laughs> that's no, that's a good one. Fewer moving parts. I'll come to your blockbuster for sure. So another last one, and this is in a similar vein. Do you have any actual paraphernalia from Rock of Fire or I suppose Chuck E. Cheese? So Brian, who do you want to answer this? Or Well, uh, you're the one who tracked everything down so right. you can explain. Um, I think you got the mug, right? Well, you got me, you bought me the mug. Oh, okay. But so it's kind of like Homer giving Marge yeah. the yes, bowling yes. ball that says Homer. Yes. Um. So I got one of the mugs that's in the sink. I think they only made Billy Bob and Mitzi. We have the Billy Bob one, and it's in really good shape. So I assume it hasn't been used the degree he uses his. And then, not that this is that crazy, but I did buy a Showbiz token, which I'm not actually sure what's happened to now, but. Um, we have a big collection of tokens from all the places like that. And then the best thing we've got, I think, is a record of their first album. It's called G, our first album. And it has Sal's birthday on it. So that's the important part. Um, but it like it's on a record. So I assume they sold those at the ticket counter or something. Yeah, but on your radio show, you called it. One of your most prized possessions. <laughs> yep. And I think that's all the official stuff. I made Brian a t-shirt of fan art of the Rock of Fire doing a battle of the bands with the band from the Muppets. What What is that band called? Dr. Teeth uh, and the Electric Mayhem. Yes, yes. So it's, yeah, it's Roll versus Fats. All the same instruments battling of the bands in each other. So a pretty cool graphic. Andrew's also got a, maybe not originally from Showbiz, but like an officially licensed Showbiz t-shirt, right? Oh, yes. Yes. I forgot about that. I need to find that. Oh, that's cool. Yep. Thank you for letting me probe your fandom. This has been as much about me learning what goes on in the mind of an Andrew <laughs> no as it problem. is about Rockfire. Definitely. Well, that's what we were aiming to provide by... <laughs> having a special guest this time around so are we ready at long last to put some numerical values on this thing yep so for our guests listening out in the world at large as well as the guest who's joined us in the studio today we have an eight-point scale with which we assign values to the movies running from one out of eight very not good to eight out of eight, tour de good. And Andrew, I'm going to let you glance over that list. Yes. And think about where this movie falls for you. I can go first here. That's okay. fine. So I was expecting this to be a novelty fun deep dive and not to like really think about the nature of, of what it means to be a person and our, the way we relate to things and the passage of time. In that way, it really exceeded my expectations about cutting deeper. And I think the fact that it cuts deep informs the, to use the word, vibe of the, the movie, the, just the feeling of everything, the, the mix of tones that blend seamlessly together. I really liked it. I, I liked it a lot. I had a lot of fun with it, but I also thought a lot about it as I was watching and afterwards, and I think it's going to stick with me, and I do intend to watch it again. That's not true of every movie we watch here, but this one I definitely would love to watch again. My one request is that it had cut even deeper and brought even more of the parallels between 
two protagonists and answered some of the questions that just kind of hang in the air. Some of them nuts and bolts questions, some of them thematic questions. And so for me, I'm going to land on a very good with the possibility of bumping up to exceptionally good if it, if it resonates with me long-term, if I watch it again. But for now, I'm going very good. This, this was a very, very uh, compelling watch for me. Nice. Well, so obviously I'm not, I mean, I, I can interpret the scale, but I'm not familiar at least with the endings of your episodes, but that is roughly what I was going to say. I don't, I probably watched like a 10th, as many movies as y'all have and wouldn't want to give it a tour day good that I don't actually even know what that translates to if it's a reference or something but it's, it's a reference to tour day force and it remains one of the poorly conceived elements of our podcast but <laughs> it's grown on me but uh-huh. anyways consider that to be the equivalent of masterpiece uh-huh um well then yeah I I would go there, but you can go there. <laughs> There's no harm in going there, man. Follow your heart. If, that, if that's what well, you feel, do it. Okay. Well then I would have originally, before you said anything, I was also going to go between very and exceptionally. So I'll go so far as to go between exceptionally and tour day. That's what I'll say. Um, I, I truly love it. I think I watch it at least twice a year. I said 15 times before that might be an well, I guess that wouldn't really be an exaggeration because it's already been nine years. So averaging somewhere around twice a year, early college, showed it to lots of people in various dorms. So I probably got even more watches in then. Watch it a whole bunch. I love it. It's great stuff. I hope to find more like it. And I'm not done in my quest to watch everything I possibly can online about it. And for that reason, I give it a seven to eight seven point seven for seven years and seven days of birthday difference awesome well andrew said it himself this movie sent us both but especially him on a quest not a lot of films do that not a lot of movies like that fire and this is a great one if you want to explore more i don't know if i've seen another documentary that has so driven me to learn more about the topic that said i have enjoyed the search more than i enjoy revisiting this which is not to say that i don't enjoy this movie i definitely like this uh but it is not in toward a good territory for me mostly because of the slightly jumbled timeline that throws me a bit but for what it has added to our lives and just really capturing the spirit of birthdays later in your life of, you know, the reflection and introspection and thinking, have I done all the things that I should have done or wanted to do and sometimes feeling frozen in time. It brings all of that to bear. This is a very personal, impactful film. For me, it gets a very good in between six and seven. So I think I'm right there with you, Dan. Excellent. Very cool. We like this one. We do. It's a good one. Check it out. If you haven't seen it, you should probably be able to track it down on YouTube. It's been up there for years. Yeah. Especially if you like offbeat documentaries, this is, this one was a winner for me.
So what's ahead in our future, Dan? Well, we've had two consecutive sort of special episodes. We had Nate on last time, Andrew on this time. Thanks to both of you for joining. We, we love getting some different voices in here. Yep, it's been um, great. So I was kind of the last one who hosted a normal episode. So I think we'll actually turn things over to you, Brian. You can, you can make a recommendation and uh, I, we'll, we'll discuss that next week. Oh, that's right. It's the old switcheroo. Yes, to keep the tables balanced, I am actually going to have another consecutive episode next week. This is another one of my picks. And I think you'll find it has more in common with the Rocker Fire Explosion than might otherwise leap to mind at first glance. This is A Bucket of Blood, a Roger Corman film from either 1959 or 1960. It's billed as a horror movie, but I think it has more in common with a movie like uh, Taxi Driver or Joker. Okay. Hmm, We might be in cruel mirror territory again. (laughs) Just maybe. Uh, but it also has a brisk runtime. It's just over an hour or two. So I think we'll be able to burn through it. And I look forward to discussing it. I'm excited too. Well, thank you all for joining us here on this special birthday episode of The Goods. I wanted to thank you all for spending the day with me. Happy birthday to you. Your, your present's coming in the mail. Oh, man. This was a good present. I'm happy already. So let's uh, let's light up a candle for all the years and episodes that are gone because this is episode 20. It's episode 20 on January 20. And thank you all for joining us here on The Goods. Join us next time. Mm-hmm.